You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, every summer, some of the most wealthy men in the entire world all get together to take it easy, have a few drinks, and make a fake human sacrifice to a giant owl. So what exactly does go on at the Bohemian Grove? It affects our everyday, and there are tons of places that we can get the information at. But where does it come from to begin with? This week, the multifaceted process that gives us our local weather reports. A lot of famous people around the world, like athletes and actors, get fan mail. But you know who else gets fan mail? Convicted serial killers. We'll discuss the psychology behind killer fan mail. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, just in general, would you kind of consider yourself more or less of a conspiracy guy? Man, I'm about as far on the anti-conspiracy theory side of that as you can be. I think they're interesting, but I also am not uh, buying into them. Yeah, I tend to get like kind of annoyed by conspiracy theories, to be yeah. honest, like most of the time, just because... I'm just the kind of the the guy that thinks the simplest explanation is usually usually the explanation, you know. Even even though you believe in aliens, <laughs> basically a conspiracy theory. Well, as has been said on this show before, I believe that life exists in our universe, not necessarily that like the government knows go. about it or whatever. Uh, and today, though, we're going to be talking about a conspiracy theory or just a thing. I mean, it exists. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just there's conspiracy theories around it uh, called the Bohemian Grove which is a private club. It's located in Northern California, and it's been the subject of a lot of controversy for really decades at this point. And I know that you yourself are very interested in the Bohemian Grove. I can't wait for this segment. When I was like 20 (laughs) or 21 years old, um, I learned about the Bohemian Grove. And so a friend of mine and I watched like three or four documentaries about it. And this is like, I don't want to say the early days of YouTube, but YouTube was not what it is now. So these are like documentaries that were like guerrilla style footage that just random guys <laughs> made. And we just, we couldn't get enough Bohemian Grove content. See, if you watch that today, you'd be stuck in like an endless algorithm <laughs> loop of conspiracy theories on Facebook. You'd be like tinfoil hat. In I it. thought you were going to say I'd be stuck in like some prison somewhere because I'd be on the list. <laughs> you would have tried to sneak Probably into both. the Bohemian Grove and gotten, uh, you know, <laughs> thrown in prison or something. Uh, well, Dave, the Bohemian Grove, sounds like you already know, but it is a private club that was established in 1872 by a group of artists, writers, and journalists that actually included Mark Twain and Jack London, who wanted a space to gather and engage in creative and intellectual pursuits. Today, it is primarily composed of wealthy and influential men from various industries, including politics, finance, and entertainment. The club has approximately 2,700 members and is located on a 2,700-acre property in Monte Rio, California. The list of people who have visited the Grove is pretty impressive, too, ranging from Charles Schwab to Herbert Hoover to Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Walter Cronkite, and both President Bushes. 
One of the most notable features of the Bohemian Grove is its annual summer retreat, which takes place over two weeks in July. During this time, members gather in the Redwoods to engage in a variety of activities, including lectures, performances, and social events. The highlight of the retreat is a ceremony known as the Cremation of Care, which involves a mock sacrifice of a human effigy to a giant owl statue known as Moloch. Now, Dave, I know that can't be real. (laughs) It just can't be real. Now, Dave, I know that sounds weird, and it sort of has to be because it is completely surrounded by secrecy and mystery. No one outside of the members really knows what goes on uh, at the Bohemian Grove. And while the Bohemian Grove may seem like a harmless and exclusive social club on the surface, it has been the subject of controversy and speculation for decades. One of the main concerns is the secretive nature of the club as non-members are not allowed on the property and members are prohibited from discussing club activities with outsiders. We do know that to get in, you need several recommendations for members or you could languish on the decades-long waiting list. But if you do get accepted, you have to be prepared to drop a $25,000 initiation fee. Additionally, some have raised concerns about the political and the business connections of these Bohemian Grove members, as many powerful individuals from various industries are known to be members of the club. Some have speculated that the retreat may be used as an opportunity for members to discuss business deals and political strategies in an environment free from prying eyes and ears. Famously, for example, Dave, a conversation at the Bohemian Grove was said to have led to the creation of the Manhattan Project. Project, which ultimately led to the development of the atomic bomb. There have also been several conspiracy theories surrounding the Bohemian Grove, especially since the dawn of the internet. One of the most popular is that the club is part of a global elite network that controls world events from behind the scenes. Some have speculated that the cremation of care ceremony is actually a satanic ritual and that members engage in secret occult practices during the retreat. Infowars even infiltrated the camp several years ago during the ceremony and filmed it with some grainy footage that threw more gas on that fire. And while there is no concrete evidence to support these conspiracy theories, they continue to circulate online and in certain circles. However, it's worth noting that many of these claims have been debunked or discredited by pretty reputable sources. Most see the club for what it is, a sort of fraternity getaway for people who have the means to go. And while probably not sinister in nature, though, really concerns remain. The thing we should be concerned about is the Lakeside Talks, activist Mary Moore told Vice in 2011. They are public policy talks where these powerful people discuss and choose policy, but they do so in secrecy with no public scrutiny. So many remain skeptical of the club's intentions and its impact on society as a whole. They argue that this really secretive and exclusive nature, that's inherently problematic when you have this many influential people in one place and all of that concentration of wealth and power. Whether the Bohemian Grove is a harmless social club or some nefarious network of global elites is ultimately, I guess, up for debate. But it is clear that the club continues to fascinate and intrigue people around the world. I think it's just the mystery of it all that really drives people to speculate here. I think it's one of the most bizarre, real things that exists. Like, they have secure... So there's a sophisticated security team, apparently, that's there all year. And these aren't just like, you know, 
mall cops standing up. I mean, these are guys with like thermal night vision cameras. <laughs> They've got heavy military grade artillery. It's I mean, it's something straight out of a spy drama. You know, if we were like a different type of show, we would just try to infiltrate it. Like we would be investigative journalists or something and just try to like get Oh, it. maybe we will. <laughs> maybe we should. Do they let local politicians in? Because I, I have kind of always wanted to run for <laughs> that. That was actually my, uh, you know, when you're a kid and you write down, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mine was I want to be mayor. Just in general. Like a just yeah. mayor. Yeah, mayor of anywhere. <laughs> really. Jay, one of my favorite things that we get to do on this show is highlight the ways you and I are different. Like the most beautiful of friendships are in fact so beautiful because we are all wired in different ways. Like even in my marriage, my wife and I have the same tastes and opinions on many things, but we're also very, very different, which in my opinion just makes it work. Plus, I'd already be divorced or at least miserable if I married myself in female form, let me tell you. <laughs> With all that said though, Jay, one thing you do, or rather one thing you don't do, that I find completely psychotic is that you never check the weather. Like, you don't do it the night before. You don't do it when you get up. You just literally guess what it'll be when you're getting dressed for the day and leave. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any justification for it. You know, I can't really just (laughs) get up here and say that it makes my life better. Uh, It probably is a net negative, really. Well, maybe in your defense, I check it too often. I do fancy myself a junior meteorologist, but I always know what the weather is at least supposed to be before I leave. In fact, I did a segment in the very early days of Commute on why meteorologists are always wrong yet keep their jobs. A day out, they're about 80% correct. More than five days out? Forget about it. But this week, we're going to talk about weather data. Like, where do the countless weather apps and weather services get their information? Well, Jay, it turns out, and to the complete shock of nobody, most weather apps have the same sources for the weather in your specific location. However, the process of how they get that data can be a little more complicated. On the surface, weather apps for your phone seem pretty simple. They provide you with the current temperature, a 7-10 to day forecast, and can send you push notifications in the event of a weather emergency. Some are free, some are not, but all of them give you the same general information. And Jay, in the U.S., most of this core data comes from the National Oceanic Atmosphere Administration, or NOAA for short, which is a division of the federal government's Commerce Department. And NOAA houses a little branch called the National Weather Service, which does most of the reporting we ultimately see. How the National Weather Service gets its data, though, Jay, that's kind of wild. For starters, the Weather Service has 900 surface-observing system sites around the country, mostly located in airports, that provide every possible sky condition you'd want to know. Next, the Weather Service uses a system of buoys from bodies of water all over the world to monitor water conditions. And Jay, you can actually see a map of these online, and it's, it's in real time. So when I went to check it out, when thinking about this segment, there were some buoys in the middle of the ocean that were reporting currents strong enough to produce possible tsunamis. <laughs> so hopefully by the time this airs, everyone's all right. Weather balloons are also used at about 90 or so various locations in the U.S., 
with the final angle of weather prediction coming from 11 satellites in outer space, all shared with one of them living at about the midpoint between Earth and the sun. And so, Jay, third-party companies take this information from all the sources, package it for weather apps like the Weather Channel or Apple, and then they show you what your specific local area can expect. So while we could easily have a weather reporting monopoly, and maybe the Weather Channel, just because of its name, is close, I don't know, we don't because some apps are better for certain areas in the U.S. than others are. Now, I will say that when it comes to weather reporting, more isn't always better, though. A guy I know who's a former Marine and I started talking weather one day, and he led me to some crazy, bizarre weather app that he swore by for accurate information. He said it was the go-to app for the Marines. It was like trying to read hieroglyphics. (laughs) I don't need all that noise, Jay. You don't need all that noise. Just let us know. Can we wear our short pants? Do we need umbrellas? And are we going to get a little extra wind in our painstakingly manicured hair? Yeah, it's like tomorrow it's going to be Alpha Delta Foxtrot. You better be prepared by bringing your, you know, beta. He was like insulted by the way that I didn't like like it. He's like, you kidding me? <laughs> you know, in another timeline, you would have made a an absolutely killer local weatherman. I, I mean, so. you'd be you'd be famous. I mean, you'd be viral all the time. Yeah. You're so passionate about the weather. I am. I am. I, and it's not too late, I guess. I could go back to school for it. I might be too late. <laughs> I don't think it's too late. It's never too late. <laughs> See, it's that kind of mindset why people don't live their dreams out. It's never too late to go back and do something. But do you really want to go back and be a weatherman? No. no, yeah, no see, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll show you. Now I do. I want to prove everybody wrong. Dave, in your past, especially when you were younger, I'm assuming you don't do this now, but whenever you were younger, did you ever write any fan mail to anyone? Maybe like an athlete or a actor, like the president or somebody? Uh, I really don't. The only experience I have with that was in sixth grade, we had to write letters to the president and then we all got autographed pictures back. So we thought that he really did it. But then, of course, you realize, no, this is just some printed thing. But, but more than writing fan mail, I was a baseball announcer for a couple of years, very low level in a small town. And I got pulled over by the police one time uh, for speeding. And when I handed my license over, the policeman said, hey, you're the voice of the local baseball team. And I said, actually, I am. And he said, get out of here. I, I love the team. Just let me go. So that's kind of like... He gave me fan mail. Yeah, this is so gross that you would use this platform to do that, that you would just use this as your vanity project. Well, Dave, today we're going to talk about fan mail, but we're going to talk about why people write love letters to convicted killers, which is actually something that's a lot more common than you think it is. You wouldn't think that people convicted for horrific crimes would get fan mail, but the phenomenon of people writing love letters to convicted killers, it's really not a new one. In fact, it's been going on for decades. Ted Bundy, for example, was famous for receiving fan mail while he was in prison. A few years ago, another convicted killer, Chris Watts, who murdered his wife and two daughters in Colorado, famously received love letters as well. And then even more recently, Alex Murdaugh, uh, who's been profiled in all kinds of documentaries for being convicted of murdering his family members, also has been receiving fan mail while he's been in prison. 
So why do some people feel drawn to these dangerous men despite their criminal history and their violent tendencies? We're going to try to dive into the psychology behind this behavior. One theory, Dave, is that people who write love letters to convicted killers are seeking a sense of power and control in their relationships. These people may have experienced past trauma or abuse, and by reaching out to these violent men, it's seen internally as taking control of the situation. In some cases, these writers may even see themselves as the savior who can reform the killer and help him turn his life around. This savior complex could be a way of dealing with some sort of uh, deep trauma. In some cases, the writer may be seeking a sense of danger or excitement that they may not be able to find in more traditional relationships. But since the person they're writing to is behind bars, this is a safe way to experience the rush of danger for some with none of the risk. Catherine Peer, a psychiatrist at the University of San Francisco, told the Washington Post that an incarcerated individual is likely to have become part of a fantasy for some, especially given how popular true crime shows are and how easily accessible the offenders are. As the rise of true crime takes over, this behavior increases. There's also the possibility that some people who write love letters to convicted killers suffer from a psychological disorder known as hybristophilia. Hybristophilia is an attraction to individuals who have committed crimes, particularly violent crimes. This disorder is not well understood, and more research is really needed to fully understand its causes and potential treatments, although traumatic experiences are likely the underlying causes in many cases. Regardless of the reasons behind this behavior, it is clear that writing love letters to convicted killers can actually have serious consequences. In some cases, these letters may encourage the killer to continue their violent behavior, or they may lead to the writers themselves becoming victims of abuse or violence, which has happened in some cases. And Dave, one reason I think this phenomenon is interesting is that it challenges our preconceived notions about love and relationships and attraction. We like to think that we're in control of our own emotions and our behaviors, but the reality is is that there are many subconscious factors that influence our choices. It should be said that rarely, if ever, do the writers of the letters actually condone the violent acts the prisoner has been convicted of. Most of the time, they write as if the acts either never happened or that the prisoner is innocent of all the charges, even though most of the time the writer has never met or will never meet the prisoner and was involved in no way in the case at any level. Additionally, the topic of people writing love letters to convicted killers raises important questions about our criminal justice system and how we treat those who have committed violent crimes. Is it ethical to allow these men to receive letters from admirers while they are serving time for their crimes? What are the potential consequences of allowing this behavior to continue? So in conclusion, the psychology behind why some women write love letters to convicted killers, it's very complex and it's very multifaceted. There is no single explanation for this behavior, but it's clear that it can have serious consequences both for the people involved and for the broader society. But by continuing to explore this topic, we can gain a better understanding of the factors that drive human behavior in general. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the highest confirmed volume of mail, of fan mail, received by anyone in one year is 900,000 letters to Hank Aaron 
1974. Now, about a third of those were people who hated him and were were mean for either <laughs> racial reasons or because he passed a baby. Well, we can't call it career fan home mail. Runs. Well, then, it's right? it's fandom, and fandom's not always it's like hate sometimes mail. fandom can be toxic. So, 900,000 for Hank Aaron. Now, while I was looking up that record, I used Google to find it. And, of course, Google will show you things that people search for along the lines of what you just searched for. One of the top things that people search for with this is, how can you impress a celebrity girl? So, I went ahead and clicked that, just in case anybody needs that information. (laughs) Here are the top eight things to do if you're trying to impress a celebrity girl. Number one, be confident. Number two, be yourself. Number three, be approachable. Number four, be thoughtful and kind. Number five, talk to her normally. Uh, Number six, make yourself look attractive. Uh, Number seven, (laughs) research some things you have in common. That's not creepy. And number eight, Jay, this most important one, how can you impress a celebrity girl? Make her happy. Or how about just like get off of this website and stop searching for stuff like this? (laughs) I also love how all the suggestions are like look different, act different, talk different, and just literally do everything different than what you're doing right now. (laughs) And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. So I wonder if I was mayor, I'd at least have a better chance of getting in the Bohemian Grove than if I'm not mayor. Oh, sorry. I, I, do you want to leave it there? No, I, I mean, I'm just saying. I, I, was, I wasn't putting that for the show. I was just saying oh. that to you. Like, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I mean, that's, I would love to go in there. Though. Just see. Well, you also famously, though, are someone who just like loves exclusive things. <laughs> like, that's true. for yeah. you, it's the, it'd be the thrill of like, I can go, but nobody else can. Like Sam's Club? That's why I yeah. like Sam's Club. See, like, you, you go nuts for stuff card. like that. Like, I take pride when I show the, the door lady. Yeah. Like, yep. Got one. <laughs> like, here's the, if you and I were going somewhere, I, I already, I, I'm telling you, I, I would feel bad about it. I already know what you're going to say. The, in the moment, I wouldn't. So, like, let's say you and I were going to, like, I had a membership somewhere, and I, I brought you with me, and we got to the, like, let's say it was a private pool or something, and we got there, like, you were all ready to get in, you put your suntan lotion on, you had your swimming trunks on, and they said, Mr. Traub, and I showed him, like, my ID card. And I was like, hey, and this is my friend. Like, he's just going to be a guest. And like, oh, well, he can't come in. It's only for members. And I, I'd still go. Yeah, like, you'd hey. be like, well, you ever heard of Uber? You can get home. Yeah. <laughs> like, I hate it, man, but rules are rules. <laughs>